Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The Bureau of Indian Affairs has concluded its investigation into reports of neglect and mismanagement in corrections facilities that first surfaced in an investigative news project. The review focused on several deaths in BIA-run jails that might have been avoided with proper staff training and oversight. But many family members remain unsatisfied following the report. We'll review the original problems and get updates on the issue coming up right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Blackfeet Nation's Tribal Council voted Thursday to remove Chairman Timothy Davis from office. Blackfeet law enforcement recently arrested nine people at his home, including members of his family, on drug-related charges. Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton has more. The Blackfeet Tribal Business Council unanimously voted to unseat Davis. In a text message to MTPR, Davis said, quote, It was unanimous, including my vote for relinquishment based on the arrests of my adult children, four who are still incarcerated, end quote. The FBI, along with tribal law enforcement last week, arrested nine people at Davis's home on charges for the sale of fentanyl and methamphetamine. Drug possession and child endangerment charges were also filed. All who were arrested pleaded not guilty. Davis was not at home at the time and does not face any charges. The council voted to select Ilef Kip Sr. to replace Davis as chairman. Kip said in a statement, quote, The Blackfeet Nation will continue to move forward in a positive way for all Blackfeet people. For National Native News, I'm Aaron Bolton. Navajo Nation health officials have further loosened COVID-19 restrictions as new infections continue to decline. As Arizona Public Radio's Ryan Heinches reports, more people will be allowed into businesses and to gather socially. The Navajo Department of Health issued three emergency orders Tuesday that transitioned the tribe from orange status to the less restrictive yellow status. Under the relaxed rules, businesses like restaurants, hotels, and the tribe's four casinos can now operate at 75% capacity. In addition, up to 25 people are now allowed to gather for social functions, traditional ceremonies, and church services, and capacity limits for school sporting events have also been increased. The orders keep in place a reservation-wide mask mandate that applies to schools and all other public spaces for both tribal members and visitors. The Navajo Nation was hit particularly hard by the pandemic and at one point in 2020 had the highest per capita infection rate in the U.S. As a result, tribal officials have kept several mandates in place long after surrounding states like Arizona and Utah rescinded their own. The Navajo Nation experienced all-time high levels of COVID cases in mid-January, but in recent weeks, new infections have slowed to levels not seen since the summer. For National Native News, I'm Ryan Heinches in Flagstaff. The Yorok Tribe on Thursday celebrated the grand opening of the first tribally operated visitor center within California's state park system. The Chopek Akata Stone Lagoon Center is now operated by the tribe 
in a partnership with California State Parks. Recently renovated and renamed, it contains displays that reflect the tribe's long-standing cultural connection to the lagoon. Yorok interpreters will share the tribe's history from pre-contact to contemporary time with visitors. During a virtual celebration Thursday, manager Rosie Claiborne talked about how the public will be able to learn about tribal history, culture, and little-known facts about the park. We have so many exhibits. We have um, you know, so many stories to tell here. This place is so deep in history. Yurok people have always had a connection to this place, but it's never gone away. It's just a continuation through time. The tribe also celebrated work to reintroduce the California condor. Later this month, the tribe and Redwood National Park plan to release four condors. They'll be the first to take flight in the region since the late 1800s. That effort has been underway by the tribe since 2008. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the American Indian College Fund, providing millions of dollars of scholarships to Native students every year. Applications for the upcoming school year are now accepted at collegefund.org or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Support by Ramona Farms, offering wholesome and delicious foods from our heirloom crops as our contribution to a better diet for the benefit of all people. We are honored to share our centuries-old farming and culinary traditions online at RamonaFarms.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The Bureau of Indian Affairs promises new reforms to address serious problems at the corrections facilities at overseas that were first exposed in a news report last summer. The report by NPR and the Mountain West News Bureau found a pattern of neglect and mismanagement that is tied to at least 19 deaths since 2016. The report prompted an internal investigation by the BIA that concluded earlier this year. But a number of people, including members of Congress, continue to question the veracity of the BIA investigation. And family members of men and women who have died in BIA facilities wonder whether anyone will ever be held accountable. Coming up this hour, we'll take you through the problems uncovered by reporters and get the perspective of a family member who continues to call for justice. And as always, we want listener input. Have you had experiences with BIA jails? Are tribally run jails different than facilities run by counties or the federal government? Share your thoughts by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-99-NATIVE. On the show today from Missoula, Montana, is Nate Hedgie. He is the host of the Outside In podcast produced by New Hampshire Public Radio, and he's a former reporter with Mountain West News Bureau. Nate, welcome to Native America Calling. Thanks for having me. In Denver, Colorado, we're joined by Robin Vincent, she is a reporter with the Mountain West News Bureau. Thanks for coming on Native America Calling, Robin. Happy to be here. Nate, you wrote this first article that called attention to recent deaths at BIA corrections facilities. It was published last June. What clued you into the story? 
I actually uh, received a phone call um, from someone um, on the um, a Blackfeet tribal member. It was it would have been two years ago now um, for a very different story, and we got to talking, and he had mentioned uh, that one of his friends. Um, kids had, had, had died in, in uh, the jail there in Browning. And um, it ended up being Willie Pepe in one of the, the main cases that we focused on in this investigation. And so I started um, reaching out to, to family members to, to figure out what, uh, what exactly had happened. Uh, they were very gracious with their time in, in, in chatting with, with me. And as we started to zoom out, we realized that, you know, this wasn't an isolated uh, case that there were other folks that had died in these jails and uh, that in fact these these detention centers have been kind of mirrored in problems going back for for decades despite um, promises of reform uh, by Congress. Now almost 20 deaths over a period of several years can you put that into perspective for our listeners like can we compare that to numbers of something similar perhaps deaths at county or state facilities? Yeah, so this is a question that actually came up really early in our investigation, and I, so I kind of want to be clear. It's not about the number of deaths. It's about how these folks died. Um, and so hundreds of people die every year in county jails. Um, I think dozens die in, in federal prisons. Federal prisons I don't think are really comparable to to these detention centers, because again, you have to realize that, you know, these detention centers are, are operated essentially as de facto um, jails. Uh, a lot of times people are in there for, for petty crimes, public intoxication, or um, one case, uh, 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 petty theft, that kind of thing. Um, so these aren't hardened criminals necessarily. You know, these are folks mm-hmm. that just, you know, um, made made a, a, a poor choice and or, or were just found to be publicly intoxicated or, or for one reason or another are spending a night uh, or two in jail. And so it wasn't about the number of folks, as I said, that, that had died. It was about how they died um, and, and the kind of neglect and mismanagement um, and uh, 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 neglect and mismanagement that happened that, that, that caused them to die. Okay, so it's not so much the number of deaths, but rather what appear to have been preventable deaths had proper procedures been followed. Is that accurate? That's accurate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. uh, lack of lack of medical um care, uh, correctional officers ignoring pleas for help, that kind of thing. Okay. And your article concluded that this pattern of neglect and mismanagement, uh, it's, it's ongoing. And, and what prompted that conclusion? Um, the conclusion was, was prompted by, at the time, um, the, uh, uh, and this is going back to the first article, the original article in, in June of, of 2021, that at the time the BIA um, had uh, not launched any kind of comprehensive review um, that at the time of our, our initial investigation, the BIA, um, you know, this, these were these were issues, deaths were happening, um, you know, as, as late as, as the fall of, of 2020. And I believe there's been deaths uh, in 2021. And that Congress, despite promising to reform the jails back in 2004, never really followed up on that promise. Um, and so right around the time that we uh, were producing, we were publishing this report, um, that's when the BIA and the Interior Department said that they were launching a comprehensive review. Um, and we believe that it came out of, of just essentially us asking a lot of uh, repeated questions and trying to get um, information and, and documents and things like that, 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 uh, that they realized that, that this is a problem that needed to be addressed. And was the BIA clear from the beginning what they were investigating? 
Um, they said that they were investigating uh, doing a top-to-bottom review of detention center policies, um, uh, you know, f- everything from, from the, uh, the maintenance of these detention centers to, to finding out whether any wrongdoing had occurred, that kind of thing. Um, but it was in the parlance of, of government speak, if you if you get what I'm saying. So, it, you know, it was sure. it was it was a statement, right? That that they didn't go into terrible a terrible amount of detail, and and okay. uh, uh, sometimes it was frankly like like pulling pulling teeth, um, trying to get um, information from the BIA during that initial investigation. Now, your article revealed uh, a, a lack of training, staffing challenges, a lack of emergency equipment in some cases. Uh, can you talk more about some of these failed management issues that have been uncovered? Yeah. So, um, you know, our big findings was there was poor staff training neglect, uh, which led to some death. Uh, correctional officers at several detention centers often violated federal policy by not checking on inmates regularly or ensuring that they received proper medical care. Um, in one case, uh, 22-year-old man, Willie Pepian, died in a holding cell, but his body wasn't discovered for nearly three hours. You're supposed to be checking on inmates every 30 minutes. Um, we'd also found that one in five correctional officers um, assigned to the detention centers had not completed the required basic training to do their job, which includes CPR, first aid, suicide prevention, um, and then more broadly, we found that several of the det- detention centers have been in disrepair for years, overflowing toilets, broken pipes, rust in the water. Uh, at least one facility we looked at uh, lacked potable drinking water, which forced jail administrators to turn to charities for bottled drinking water. Um, we also found that Congress has chronically underfunded these detention centers despite repeated investigations that found that the facilities were short-staffed and had problems, and despite um, tribal leaders asking for uh, upgraded facilities and, and more help um, uh, when it came to the detention center programs on their, on their, um, their, their reservations. Now you, you mentioned underfunding. Is that the underlying source of all of these other issues? Is it, is it a funding issue first and foremost, do you think? I think that that is one big issue is, um, a lack of funding um, and, and, and being underfunded. Uh, I think there was a, um, I forget what the exact number was, but there's there's quite a significant budget shortfall for what they estimate they need versus what they're allocated by Congress and what the BIA has asked Congress for. Um, I think another big issue is a, uh, a lack of on-site nurses or medical staff um, at these jails. So if you look at a county jail, county jails, um, normally have at least a nurse on staff. Uh, federal prisons that aren't BIA uh, detention centers definitely have either, you know, um, a nurse, a physician, someone like that on staff to be able to to check on folks. Because a lot of these jails, you were having people coming in with struggling with, with substance abuse issues. Um, in one case in 2017, Chris's brother, who we'll hear from later in the show, you know, his brother came in um, severely intoxicated. He needed to go to a hospital. He needed to get medical care, but instead he was placed into a um, essentially a, 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 a solitary cell and left alone for seven hours, and he, he died from alcohol poisoning. Um, so I would say funding is one thing, but, you know, the BIA not requiring medical staff to be on site also contributed to, to um, many of these deaths. Now, I know that the BIA has recommended some reforms to these jails. Do those include better health care for inmates? 
No, not that we know of. Um, that was something that, again, you know, this is going through kind of the parlance of of, uh, of the one sheet kind of release of of more broad reforms that uh, that the BIA has has disclosed publicly, um, and they did not include a requirement for on-site medical personnel at these jails. That now we know of. These, okay, and many of these facilities are are run by tribes, so. Is there an obligation? Do they share an accountability for some of these issues? Do you think tribals, tribal entities as well? Yeah, I think that. I mean, it depends, right? These these detention facilities are essentially separated into three categories. There are a handful of them that are completely ran, funded, and operated by the tribes, and then um, you have another larger chunk that are directly operated by the BIA, funded by the BIA. You know, those correctional officers are working for the BIA. And then there's the third, which is, I think, a majority of tribal detention centers, which is they're contracted, right? So the BIA uh, provides all the or most of the funding and all oversight for uh, jails that are being ran by uh, tribes like the Navajo. The Navajo Nation would be an example of that. And in that case, um, there are definitely it becomes kind of a, a mushy middle of where uh, the tribes have some responsibility um, and then the BIA has responsibility. But at the end of the day, the buck stops uh, with the BIA in terms of deaths at these jails. The BIA's responsibility is to provide oversight, to uh, provide rules and regulations. And if they, uh, uh, if, if, if a, uh, a, a detention center employee does not follow those rules and regulations, it's the BIA's it's at the BIA's discretion to, to either okay. you know, uh, take that contract. Sure, sure. We've got to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Edith Kanaka Ole was instrumental in carrying on Hawaiian dances and songs to future generations. She is a cultural icon in Hawaii, and now the U.S. Mint will include her image on quarter coins. We'll look at the life and lasting influence of the late Edith Kanaka Ole on the next Native America Calling. Mesa Lands Community College can help you lead the way in your chosen field. At Mesa Lands, where one in three students is Native American, you get hands-on opportunities working one-on-one with instructors in wind energy, where students go up the turbine in their first semester, silversmithing with access to the largest foundry in the Southwest, and blacksmithing in the cowboy arts. Mesa Lands has a national top 10 rodeo team, too. Info and applications at mesalands.edu. Mesa Lands Community College supports this program. Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Sean Spruce. What role should the BIA have in ensuring the health and safety of inmates and in corrections facilities the agency oversees? That's the question we're exploring today with reporters who uncovered a series of problems at BIA jails. Family members are also calling for accountability. You can join our conversation as well. Call in at 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-99-NATIVE. Nate, another layer to this story is the BIA's hiring of an outside firm to investigate these issues. And you later reported there are questions about this firm's um, ability to investigate the agency. Why is that? Well, they hired a firm ran by a man named Darren Cruzan. 
And Cruzan actually served as the top law enforcement officer uh, for the BIA and later at the Interior Department from 2010 to 2019. So um, during the same time span when, when some of these deaths occurred. And in fact, he had oversight responsibilities for, for the corrections program uh, in both, both, uh, both positions. So essentially, um, the, uh, a handful of these deaths uh, occurred under his watch. And then the, um, the, the Interior Department hired him and his, his small firm. Uh, there's about four people. Uh, he's the managing partner, and there's three others part of his firm to, uh, to, to run this, this, this investigation into, into deaths that essentially occurred under his own watch. Now, has anyone else expressed concern about a possible conflict of interest? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that was uh, expressed by uh, uh, members of Congress. Uh, Senators uh, John Tester, Steve Daines, Montana, uh, Rahul Rahul Grijalva, um, who uh, uh, leads the uh, the House Natural Resources Committee, and then um, we also spoke with uh, government ethics experts, folks folks who uh, focused on on contracting, and they felt that this this raises serious conflict of interest um, uh, questions. Which again, if in in the world of federal contracting, you're supposed to avoid even the appearance of a uh, of a conflict of interest. So so it definitely raised questions from both lawmakers and and ethics experts. Now the report that this firm um, developed it has it has been seen, it has been read, and. Are there any blatant um, red flags that appear that maybe they're covering up information or uh, protecting individuals that could be held accountable because of the relationship that this uh, the owner of this firm has with uh, BIA and law corrections? So I've I've reviewed the uh, the final um, in custody death study that was produced by the Cruzan Group. It is not publicly available. We were we uh, we were able to obtain a copy though, and it is. A damning report um, and at the same time it's hard to know what was what if anything was left out of the report um, as it reads it uh, details each one of the deaths that happened from 2016 through 2020 um, in in details that we even as you know doing this investigation uh, two years ago or two years ago a year and a half ago um, weren't able to get to. So so it's definitely damning. Um, but again, it's hard to know whether things were left out or not. Um, that's kind of does why, the report, why they're... Okay, okay does the report hold anyone accountable, such as BIA Corrections leadership? Uh, that's a great question. Um, it charts no, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't hold. Um, I would. I would say no. It doesn't hold OJS leadership accountable. I, it charts a path forward. It shows where mistakes were made. Um, it shows what. It suggests policy reforms. It does not hold OJS leadership accountable. Now I know there have been calls to uh, do a redo on this contract, right, or award it to a new firm. Uh, do you think those will go anywhere? Um, no, I don't think they will. I mean, that's just my lay, my, my lay assumption, um, just kind of recognizing how um, the BIA and Interior work over the past two years that I think that if there is, if there is increased pressure uh, and this story keeps cycling up in the news, then I could see that happening. But as it stands now, I, don't, I, I, think, I think they're 
very excited to brush this under the rug and, and move forward. Well, Nate, thank you for all of that background. And, and I'm going to ask you some more questions here in a little while. But at this point, I'd like to bring in another guest. Joining us from Ignacio, Colorado is Chris Yazzie. He is the brother of Carlos Yazzie, who died while in custody in a BIA facility. Chris is Navajo. Welcome to Native America Calling, Chris. Hey, how's it going? Thank you for having me. Absolutely, Chris. And first off, I, I want to express my sincere condolences to you and your family over the loss of your brother. And again, thank you so much for coming on the show today and talking with us. Yes, sir. Chris, thank what you can for you that. T- and uh, glad to be here. Yeah, and we're so happy to have you as well. And Chris, what can you tell us about your brother, Carlos? Well, I can tell you that uh, for sure, I think uh, he was one of the, um, you know, he was a person that struggled uh, most of his life uh, with alcoholism. And, you know, it it has its roots uh, with, uh, I think, uh, some of the trauma that we experienced as children of, uh, of a Vietnam veteran who was also an alcoholic. So, um, I think that's the first thing I can say is that, um, you know, law enforcement, corrections officers, you know, a lot of these people, they, I really feel like there should be a little bit of um, education and information that, you know, a lot of people who are alcoholics or struggling with addictions or mental conditions aren't necessarily asking for these things. You know, they kind of, uh, some of these things happen as a result of, like I said, trauma and just, um, you know, how their lives have, you know, what they've been shown and, and not shown in life. You know, a lot of people are at a disadvantage as far as coping skills and things like that, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, but he was, a, he was a fun-loving guy. I mean, he really did love his family and um, had, had some really good moments, um, tended to uh, have compassion on other people. And himself, you know, he knew that he had all these struggles. And he, you know, I think most of the time he just accepted, you know, um, the way the officers treated him and basically the way he was treated in general, I think he just, you know, he always accepted responsibility, you know, that, um, you know, because of the struggles with alcohol, that some, some, sometimes these things just came with, with, the, with the territory. And, um, you know, unfortunately for him, the way he was treated in the last day of his life actually cost him his life. So, I mean, I think, I think to the end, he was very trusting in general of, of the authorities. Now, when you, you first heard that your brother had died in custody there at a, at a BIA corrections facility in Shiprock, New Mexico, what questions did you have? Oh, I immediately, I, I suspected foul play um, just because of how um, non-transparent they were about his death. Um, the fact that they shipped him off to, uh, to get his autopsy in Albuquerque. Um, before even informing, you know, my mom or any of us that he uh, had had passed away. Um, And then, you know, even after that, trying to obtain a police report, you know, or or any kind of um, incident report on on my brother's death was like pulling teeth, you know. And and it actually wasn't until a couple of years later when Nate came with uh, some documents that we realized, you know, that my brother had indeed uh, been denied – you know, medical care. Um, he, he was denied, um, you know, his rights and uh, put in a jail cell and uh, neglected for seven straight hours before they found him dead in the jail cell. Now, staff and jail administrators, what did they tell you was the cause of death? 
Um, well, actually, uh, they uh, they didn't give us a cause of death. Um, they basically deferred everything to uh, a pending uh, investigation to the CIs, you know, which is uh, Navajo Nation's form of uh, FBI, I guess, kind of type people. But you know, every everyone was rude, you know, from the officers to the police chief to to the CIs. I mean, they basically. Um, you know, at every at every turn, they told us that there was nothing they could give us because of the pending investigation. And then it turned into a pending lawsuit, which uh, I'm assuming was filed by his wife. Um, so, you know, and really the only information we've ever gotten was through, you know, was through the reporter Nate for NPR.org that was uh, exposing some of this. And, you know, my mom actually was a, an employee of that jail as a cook for about 15 years. And even she wasn't allowed to, uh, you know, obtain any information about her own son's death. So it was heartbreaking, you know, the way we were treated. Did the autopsy report reveal uh, any any helpful information for you? Yes, sir. Um, the autopsy report actually said that he uh, died of acute alcohol intoxication, but that um, <clears throat> the seven hours that he wasn't checked on, which um, I uh, I'm you know, looking at the report, um, was confirmed uh, through video and, and the FBI investigation um, that, you know, because he was neglected for such a long period of time and nobody had come in to check on him in his jail cell that, um, you know, it was a contributing factor to his death. You know, yes, he was acutely intoxicated with alcohol, but um, if there was some intervention, um, likely they would have taken him to the hospital and probably given him you know, what they call a banana bag, you know, you know, use some, some uh, fluids to delete the alcohol, blood alcohol in his, in his system and, you know, likely would have survived to live another day, you know, which, uh, mm-hmm. you know, is, is the most, um, you know, um, sad aspect of it is that I think that sometimes uh, the lack of training for these police officers and corrections officers, I think, you know, they, it kind of... Um, causes them to uh, to kind of be in judgment with some of these individuals and feel like, you know, well, that person probably would have never quit drinking and probably would have died of that anyway and stuff. But, you know, as a recovering alcoholic of 22 years myself, I know that you just never know when a person can quit drinking or, you know, when, when that person can, can reach hit bottom and, uh, and you know, go on to a, a kind of a new life, you know, so... I, I feel that, you know, my brother should have had another day to live, another day of hope, another day that he could have possibly overcame the alcohol. I mean, like I said, nobody knows, you know, when a person can reach that yeah. day. But, you know, when in situations like this, you're denying a person another day to, uh, to possibly uh, um, overcome because uh, he was asking for help that night. He had an infection in his foot. And uh, he knew he was in pain. I think he knew that he was in trouble as far as um, his body. I think he kind of knew that, you know, he was he was really in serious trouble, and he kept asking for help. And and in the report uh, um, that Nate gave me, you know, the corrections officers actually asked for medical clearance from the police officers who denied it, and then also um, the fact that they were joking and laughing about my brother's situation. Um, was was really damning, you know. So, I mean, I think that's where I think the education, you know, maybe a little bit of medical education as far as recognizing signs of distress in a person. You know, even an alcoholic, I think you you should be able to recognize signs of distress, you know, and differentiate that from, you know, um, 
what, what in my opinion, they always dismiss as just uh, rude behavior or, you know, impulsive behavior. Right, right. And if they don't have the training to be able to make those types of, those calls and be able to ascertain what those situations look like and what they are, yeah, they're just completely uh, incapable of, of being able to manage a situation like that. Now, uh, Chris, who do you think needs to answer for your brother's death? I'm sorry? Who do you think needs to answer for your brother's death at this point? Well, I, I definitely uh, felt like the, uh, well, at, at one point, the uh, Shiprock Police Department actually came down to our hometown of Tisnasmas, Arizona, to uh, promote a uh, public safety awareness day. But at that point, I confronted the police chief and all the officers there and, and um, you know, uh, advised them that we knew of their actions and uh, that we were holding them accountable. And the police chief did apologize for, for my brother's death that day, so I'm grateful for that. But I think that it needs to go up higher than that. I think that, you know, people in the BIA and uh, the Interior Department, I think, need to answer for some of these because, you know, I think the police department only goes as far as, as the Interior Department and the BIA goes as far as caring for these individuals that they take into custody. You know, I think um, as a registered nurse myself, um, I feel like... Um, they could at least start thinking about maybe um, having uh, basic, uh, you know, vital signs equipment such as uh, pulse oximeters, uh, blood pressure cuffs, um, you know, thermometers and things like that just to um, at least give them an idea if somebody is physically in distress, you know. I mean, I understand that sometimes they may have a hard time differentiating from somebody who's just, uh, you know, complaining about something to somebody who's, you know, actually you know, um, expressing, uh, something that they feel inside their body is, is detrimental to their health. Um, mm -hmm. so, you know, I, I don't, I don't think anybody's going to take the initiative, um, on the, on the officer or even the supervisor level. I think, uh, it's going to have to come from the top if changes are going to be made where, you know, people that they take into custody, you know, who, which they become responsible for, they become responsible for their health they become responsible for their safety they assume responsibility for their very lives when they take a person into custody. And I think that needs to be stressed uh, from the top all the way down, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That, that most certainly does. Absolutely. They have responsibility. As soon as those people are in their custody, it is on them to make sure that those people are safe. Chris, since this was first reported, have you heard from other people, other families who have had similar frustrations? Sir, um, there have been a few people uh, that have contacted me with, with similar stories, not all resulting in death, but um, some that were just, you know, heartbreaking to hear that, that they were released uh, in almost in critical condition and the families had to ship them, you know, transport them immediately to a healthcare facility where they, you know, narrowly survived a couple of instances like that. And also reading these other stories of, of these other families with NPR.org that they were able to contact. We didn't realize that this was a, a sort of a, a national problem. It wasn't just here in this area, but that, you know, other jails in Indian country are, are you know, uh, dealing with the same um, deficiencies and neglect and things like that, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, the lack of yeah. training seems to be the biggest one that jumps out. I mean, it just seems like. The interior department doesn't doesn't want to invest uh, into uh, into the health of uh, you know the the well being and safety of of the inmates that they that they pay these people to arrest. It seems like it's just a 
foregone conclusion sometimes that, you know, these people are going to die of alcoholism and not worth the investment. But I, I believe otherwise, you know, I believe that maybe, maybe a, a small uh, percentage of them would actually overcome alcohol and, and go on to lead uh, lives, but their lives nonetheless, you know, regardless of right, whether right. they're alcoholics or drug addicts or, or criminals for that matter, um, they're all people. They're all still souls that, that are, you know, uh, existing and, on this earth as we are. Yeah. And like you mentioned, uh, we all deserve the chance to, to live another day. Absolutely. Can't agree with you more on that. And, and, and again, Chris, thank you so much for, for coming on the show and sharing this information with our, our listeners. I think it's it's really, really impactful. And I do want a, a note of disclosure here. We did reach out to the Bureau of Indian Affairs for comment. They did not get back to us by showtime. Listeners, if you've got a question or a comment, please reach out. 1-800-996-2848. That's the number to call. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce, and we'll be back right after a short break. Are you Native American with a disability and feel you have not been able to access services for you or a loved one? The Native American Disability Law Center can help. The Native American Disability Law Center is a not-for-profit 501c3, and there is no charge for this help. More info at 800-862-7271 or nativedisabilitylaw.org. Who support this show? You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Still time to join the discussion. Correction facilities overseen by the Bureau of Indian Affairs are the focus of today's show. 1-800-996-2848. The number to call to share your comments on the air. Once again, that's 1-800-996-2848. Let's bring our third guest into the conversation now, Robin Vincent. Robin, you have written an article as well about these issues at BIA Corrections Facilities, and you talked to another family member uh, from another family that was impacted. What did you hear from that person? Well, Sean, I heard despair. I heard anger. I spoke with Laura Sue Pepian. Nate reported on the death of her brother, Willie Pepian. So um, as Nate mentioned, he died in May of 2020 while he was in custody at the Blackfeet Correctional Facility that's in Browning, Montana. He was 22 years old. Laura Sue said the report um, that recently came out outlining details of her brother's death, it really upset her because it highlighted just how little was done to prevent his death. She believes he would still be here today if jail personnel had followed protocol and had been prepared to handle a medical emergency. Okay. And I understand he was 22 when he died in, in custody. And um, was was any of this information included in, in the BIA's review, do you know? Yeah, let me let me give you a, a quick little rundown of, of what we know about what happened to Willie Pepian. So he was arrested for disorderly conduct after he'd been in a fight. He was brought to a hospital and the report says a doctor there cleared him for incarceration. Uh, he then spent 13 hours in a cell. What was not in the report 
I'd say is striking too. An inmate at the time told my colleague, Nate Hedgie, that uh, Willie Pepian was in terrible shape, that he was curled up in a fetal position, yelling for guards to take him back to the hospital. Um, that was not, that detail was not in the report. Uh, what we do know from the report is that jail guards later found him dead in his cell. He had choked on his own vomit. The report does describe some of the jail staff's neglect and their missteps. For one, it says that when they found Pepian, they didn't take any measures to save him because they didn't have personal protection equipment. Um, and as Nate also mentioned, they were not uh, regularly monitoring Pepian, and they falsified records to say that they had been doing that. Um, federal policy dictates they're supposed to be checking on inmates every 30 minutes, uh, and as Nate said before, it had been hours uh, since they had checked on him. Where do family members place the blame? Uh, Laura Sue Pepian uh, places it squarely on jail personnel, on um, federal officials. She sees this as uh, reflective of um, the marginalization of uh, Native inmates, and she feels like her brother was just a number to them. Now, did she express to you what would help her family going forward to feel satisfied that that BIA is is trying to to improve these situations or address this death or others like it? I, I mean, I'm curious to know like more about what what some of these families need to move forward. Yeah, it, from from Laura Sue Peppy and I, I uh, gathered sort of. Um, some, some resignation from her, right? Because she feels like there's nothing that's going to bring her, her brother back at this point, but she wants to see um, huge sweeping changes in these facilities. Um, and in her brother's case, his uh, death was ruled as a homicide um, because he had been in a fight uh, prior to being arrested. And so uh, federal authorities and local law enforcement determined that that fight, um, he incurred uh, skull fractures, and that's what led to his death. Then the case was closed. She wants it reopened. She wants these details reexamined, and she also wants to see some consequences for Darren Cruzan, um, who I'll, I'll remind you, he is the one who was hired by the Interior Department to review the deaths of her brother and many others in tribal jails. And he is the uh, former top cop at the Interior. So um, his consulting company is the one that was awarded $83,000 to study what happened in these incidents, despite some of the deaths happening on his watch. Now you mentioned his uh, the death was ruled a homicide. Is there an ongoing homicide investigation? Is has anyone been charged with that murder? Not that I know of. No, there uh, the case was was closed and remains unsolved. Okay, that's really really disturbing. Now uh, I also read some some you know, there have been some some similarities and some connections between some of these deaths and. 
and what we saw a couple of years ago in Minneapolis with the George Floyd tragedy. Can you talk a little bit about that, Robin, and some of those parallels? Sure, sure. So I spoke with Tom Rogers. He's a tribal advocate and a Blackfeet member. And we were talking about one of the deaths. Um, It was a man named Richard Bennett, and Tom Rogers was reflecting on his case. And so I'll first just quickly tell you about that. So Richard Bennett was 28 years old. He died in custody at the Blackfeet Correctional Facility in May of 2018. He was arrested for possession of an open container. And while he was in custody, he told guards he had chest pains. And this report that recently um, we obtained says that the, the guards dismissed his complaint. And hours later, he collapsed. Then two guards who discovered him argued about whether he had a pulse. And the report says that that dispute between the guards delayed any life-saving measures that could have been taken for the next seven minutes. So now I'll circle back here to Tom Rogers, the tribal advocate, who he said those seven minutes bring to mind for him one thing, and it's the nine-minute gap um, with regard to George Floyd. So Rogers says, you know, those crucial minutes They're eerily familiar. He feels that both instances provide a a window into the systemic racism and the marginalization that people of color in the U.S. constantly face. Both Floyd's life and Bennett's life, um, they were devalued by people who were working in the criminal justice system. And here we are talking about the consequences of that, which have been fatal. Okay. Well, Robin, thank you for all of those insights. And Nate, I'd like to to come back to you. And and we've heard some really, really tragic stories today. Uh, We've learned about this potential conflict of interest in the BIA investigation. So I want to ask you, what's next? Uh, Where do we go from here? Well, yeah. um, You know, as I said earlier, the BIA has now promised um, reforms and it's it's laid out um, uh, some some reforms. Uh, did so I believe it was last last month, and it's been unfortunate because I've I've since moved on from the bureau and I haven't been following this as closely um, over the past uh, two months. But essentially, it'll be it'll remain to be seen whether you know the BIA actually enacts these reforms and whether those reforms lead to either a decrease in, in death or, or just better care for for folks who are interned in these uh, in these jails. Um, you know, there's also questions about whether lawmakers will hold a, uh, a hearing. There's, I know there's been talk on Capitol Hill um, about uh, having a, a, a essentially a, a hearing um, in the Senate, um, taking a look at exactly uh, what some of these problems are and, and how to fix them. But uh, a lot of it is just kind of um, a waiting game, I think, at this point um, to see whether whether these promises will will be enacted. But if we look in the past. Unfortunately, you know, um, we've seen these kind of promises before. We saw them more than 20 years ago or almost 20 years ago, I should say, in 2004, um, the last time that this all came to a head. So we'll see if if, um, this kind of next round of revelations actually results in change or or whether um, things remain the same. Now, these reforms earlier 
you mentioned that improved health care is not one of those reforms. But what about these issues with the training, the, the understaffing challenges, the, the lack of some of this equipment, defibrillators and things like that? Are, are those going to be addressed, hopefully, by, by some of these actions? Uh, yeah, that's definitely, I think, within the uh, in the in the target of, of the IA leadership right now. Um, it does seem that Brian Newland um, uh, is taking this more seriously than his predecessors. Um, and also, if you look at the uh, the proposed budget by the Biden administration this year, we actually do see um, a, a somewhat significant uh, budget increase to focus on uh, detention center repair and the program in general. It's not, it does not address the full shortfall that the, uh, the BIA says it has for the detention center um, and corrections program, but it is definitely a larger budget increase than we've seen in the past. So I should say that those, those do appear to be some meaningful steps. Of course, when you look at a budget, of course, uh, that's a proposed budget. We'll see what actually um, gets passed in Congress uh, later this year or early next year. Well, Nate, thank you so much for your reporting. Uh, and, and Robin, you as well, really appreciate both of you uh, going out and, and really digging into some of these details and bringing these issues and these stories to light. Really, really uh, troubling, disturbing, but, but certainly something we all need to, to learn more about. So very much appreciate it. We have a caller on the line, Nick. He is listening in Albuquerque, New Mexico on KUNM. And he wants to to make a special comment. Nick, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Sean. Am I coming through there? Loud and clear, Nick. Loud and clear. That's great. Thanks. I sent a message yesterday. I sent a text, an email. But your comment was so sweet. And I think that uh, I'm a longtime listener of the show. And I've heard Melvin over over several years. And uh, always look forward to his thoughtful, kind uh thoughts and so i think as i said in my note he will be missed greatly by many and uh i think it was great of you to make a comment about him at the end of the show yesterday and uh, so i i was saddened and i continue to be somewhat saddened today because uh, i think he was a great loss and uh, so i just wanted to share that with listeners uh, who came to know Melvin a little bit, and I know people at the radio station uh, did too. So that's that's all I wanted to say. Well, Nick, thank you so much for reaching out and sharing those thoughts regarding uh, the late Melvin Houston, who passed away earlier this week and, and was a dedicated longtime listener to the show, Native America Calling, a uh, regular contributor calling all the time with lots of great insights lots of great information so um again really really unfortunate but but again such a such a great loss to not only native america calling but but indian country in general so thank you nick for those comments as well i I, I appreciate Uh, your comments thank you and love the show love the way you format it so uh i'll bid you a fond farewell for now (laughs) okay all right well thank you so much so much nick Listeners, it's Friday, and uh, the show, we're going to go ahead and have to, to wrap it up here in just another couple of minutes. But again, a really, really thoughtful discussion today regarding some of these issues at BIA jails in Indian country, uh, a stirring report that came out 
uh, some investigative journalism revealed some really serious incidents, uh, deaths, suicides, um, attempted suicides as well. So that's all the time we have. And I'd like to give a word of thanks to Nate Hedgie, Robin Vincent, and Chris Yazzie for a startling look at serious issues of neglect and mismanagement at BIA correctional facilities. We're back Monday to start off another week of live shows. We'll hear about the late Hawaiian dancer, singer, and educator, Edith Kanaka-Ole. And we have some of these reports, uh, some of this information regarding the, um, these deaths at BIA jails and related information. We're going to have that up on our website today. So if you want more information regarding any of these issues, please take a look at our website. Uh, we've also got a lot of really timely information on Facebook as well. And we always appreciate it when our listeners connect with us after the show on social media. That's what it's there for. So please take advantage of those communication channels as well. And we'll keep you in the loop. And we appreciate you reaching out as well and providing your insights and your information to really make this show impactful for all of our listeners and all of Native America that's out there and benefits from this information. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our senior producer is Andy Murphy. Marino Spencer is the engineer. Show McPollin is the digital producer. We had production help this week by Luella Bryn. Nola Daves Moses is the distribution director and Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our national underwriting sales director. Antonia Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our chief operations officer. The president and CEO of Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. I'm Sean Spruce. Have a great weekend. Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a one of a kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com. Hey, CMS programs are available to help manage diabetes in our communities. Enroll today. Contact your local Indian health care provider for more information. Visit healthcare.gov or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Elahqua. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.